Hello there, this is Andrew with Monkey Tooth. Before I get too deep into what I hope won't be too long-winded or meandering, I'd like to lay out a few stats. For one, I'm 41 years old. I weigh 195 pounds. I drink, on average, about two glasses of wine a month. I don't eat fast food or processed foods in general. I exercise regularly. I live what feels like an active and healthy life. And two weeks ago, I had a stroke. A week later, I had a tube in my throat and a doctor took a look at a small hole in my heart. When I say I had a stroke, I mean a little baby stroke. My wife and the doctors call it a transient ischemic attack, or a TIA for short. Oddly, and entirely without relevance to the following discussion, TIA, or TIA, happens to be the Spanish word for aunt. Now, when I say I have a hole in my heart, I mean a very small hole, which may or may not present a real problem for me. More testing will determine if it does, and if it can be sealed by a surgeon. I also have a history with a heart rhythm called atrial fibrillation, a fib for short. Mercifully, that acronym does not appear to be the Spanish word for anything I give a shit about. But according to my cardiologist, the combination of my quivering heart valve and the fact that I now have a Spanish aunt in my brain is cause for some concern. TIA in itself is not a major deal, but it does present as a warning that bigger fish are possibly swimming downstream waiting to be caught, cleaned, and fried. In other words, although not life-threatening, the truly peculiar and frightening aspect of having a TIA is that it represents a peek behind the veil of what could be my future. A real stroke which fucks me up irreversibly for life. There is a history of this in my family as well. I've got numerous uncles and tias who've experienced full-blown strokes, heart attacks, and a variety of life-changing health conditions. My oldest sister, uh, not the cool one who I watched cartoons with, but the crazy and mean one, who we all wish was a little nicer to just about everyone, had a massive stroke at 45. So, in spite of my best attempts to live in a way which maximizes the health of my physical form in order to avoid having to think about whether or not my experience as a human has been meaningful, I can't escape the feeling that I'm falling apart in not-so-slow motion. I know my friends and relatives will tell me not to be fatalistic about this, and to consider a more hopeful narrative to propel myself forward. I respect that enough to not dismiss it completely. However, having witnessed this progression of bodily failure so many times in my life, it is seriously difficult not to feel 
like I've been involuntarily shoved onto a treadmill of pills, procedures, preventatives, and physicians from which the only escape is death. Fortunately, I'm the sort who can take comfort in knowing that much worse things have happened to considerably better people. These inexplicable tribulations have not dampened my spirits beyond reason, and in spite of being prodded and tested and mildly stroked out, I have to say, I'm having a pretty good time. I'm also super grateful for a number of aspects of this episode in my life. Namely, that my sweet wife and I decided to pull up the stakes of our life years ago to focus on living an adventure rather than being focused on living to work. With that out of the way, I'll tell you exactly what happened to me and why I'm actually glad it happened when and where it did. Two weeks ago, Tiffany, a friend and I decided to go on a hike along a beach which looks directly into the San Francisco Bay with a beautiful view of the Golden Gate Bridge, the ocean, and the city. Earlier that day, Tiffany and I took a trip to a small cemetery to attend the memorial service for a beloved co-worker of hers who had recently died, a guy called William. Regrettably, I never met William, but his service made me love him. Hearing a mix of family, friends, and co-workers tell his tale was deeply sad, inspiring, and proof to me that even though I find life to be pointless, it is still absolutely worth it to be as kind as humanly possible for no reason whatsoever all the damn time. Before the end of the service, another of Tiff's co-workers, who was standing near us, had to go sit down on a bench in kind of a hurry. He was clutching his heart and taking a pull at some nitroglycerin pills in his pocket. It turns out he was not having a heart attack, but it was still a bit unsettling to see him suffering in this way. After the service, we headed back to the house to eat something and change clothes before picking up our friend to go to the beach. Moments before leaving the house, I was stopped cold by an odd sensation. It was somewhat similar to standing up too fast. I was suddenly lightheaded, but a strange sound was rattling in my ears, like a train was running far away, or as if a recording of a giant fan was being played at a super low pitch. I had to take a knee to keep from falling over. I tried to tell Tiffany about it, but no words would come out of my mouth. I would have written it off completely after it dissipated, but I hadn't stood up too quickly. I'd been standing and walking around for quite a while when it happened. I even joked with Tiff and said it felt like I just had a little stroke. 
My face felt a little numb and tingly, but it passed quickly, and I told myself I just needed to drink some more water. So I drank some more water, and we left. Hopping in the car, we picked up our friend. I was driving. Our friend was giving directions from the back seat while we talked. I mentioned how windy it had been, and that day after day of wind seemed like it could possibly make people a little crazy. Our pal happens to be a doctor of Chinese medicine. Her take on the wind related to that school of thought, and she talked a bit about what effect constant wind has on the meridian system of the human body. I started to tell her about what had just happened to me. But as I spoke, the words I wanted to say were no longer coming out of my mouth the way I intended. Right away, Tiff told me I wasn't making any sense. Is this true? Please let me talk to you. Let me talk to you. I have lived here before. The days of And of course, this is why I'm so concerned. And I come back to find the stars displaced. And the smell of a world that is burned. A smell of the world that is burned. A sensation unlike any I've ever encountered suddenly engulfed me. My awareness of the world around me felt like it was being piece by piece returned to whomever had loaned it to me. The voices in the car seemed very far away. My consciousness, not just awakeness or awareness, was floating out of my body like a silent but deadly fart, sneaking from between a couple of nervous butt cheeks and a desk chair in a classroom, slowly and steadily leaving with a foul and muted goodbye to my body. my right eye I could see a half corona of geometrical patterns. Didn't matter if I closed my eyes or had them open, I could see it. The snake-like configuration of shapes was insistent, colorless, bright white, and deeply troubling. I stopped the car, put it in park somehow, and had to get out in a hurry. Never in my life have I been so confused yet simultaneously aware of what was happening. I remember all of this completely. I never blacked out, and I remember what was being said. I saw the cars around us, confused drivers staring at the staggering weirdo masked in a bandana as he stumbled from the driver's seat around the rear of the car into the passenger seat. Tiffany's voice sounded like she was talking from the car behind us. 
I was too confused to be properly terrified by what was happening to me. I felt like whatever control I normally had over my perception of the flow of experience was no longer something I could manage. I went from not being aware that I even had a hand in perceiving reality to suddenly being aware that I absolutely could not control it. Tiffany, normally calm and cool, jumped in the driver's seat and started to drive a little wildly. A large black SUV was confused by her movements and honked at us. But she turned us around and took us back the way we came. There were a few close calls and I remembered trying to tell her to be calm and just drive safe. If I'd had my shit together at that moment, I would have relaxed and remembered she's an excellent driver. Set the straight man to the late man Where have you been? I've been here and I've been there and I've been in Meanwhile, our friend was in the back seat taking my pulse and digging her thumbnail into my fingertips below the nail bed to stimulate blood flow or something to that effect. In that moment, I felt a swell of gratitude in my heart. My strong and powerful wife, a competent and capable nurse who had a solid understanding of what was happening to me, was taking charge of the car and not taking any shit in traffic, fearlessly getting me to the hospital in record time. While she drove, my new friend, a doctor in an ancient discipline of health and wellness, was doing her bit to keep me together until I could get to a place with the utmost in medical resources. She also, with one hand digging into my fingers, was on the phone with the emergency department of the hospital to let them know we were moments away. I could not have asked for better care at that moment. My We made it to the hospital and I was immediately relieved that our friend was there to look after Pele while Tiff and I made our way to the emergency room. I was still pretty confused, sluggish, and had a desperate desire to just lie down and close my eyes. It's when I remembered that we're still in the middle of a pandemic and emergency rooms are functioning quite a bit differently than I remembered. Like 
An effeminate and fussy male nurse was marshalling people around and away from each other with a snappy fashion designer's charm. His insistence on enforcing rules which no one else seemed to know was a bit vaudevillian. My temperature was taken and Tiffany was shooed away by the designer. I was seated in a wheelchair and rolled over to a covered outdoor waiting area. Several other people were languishing in their hardback chairs as I lolled about in my comfy wheelchair. I saw a park bench at the back of the tent. Got up, staggered over to it, laid my body on it, and tried to settle in. But the moment I closed my eyes, my name was called, so I had to get back up and get back in my chair. I was handed a pen and asked to sign my name in a consent form. It felt like I was holding a needle. My whole right side felt really big. Amazingly, my already awful signature was not changed in the least. And from that point forward, I was put at the very front of the line. Forget our fate. Set up to sell my soul. I lift a life coterie of kind and capable nurses, technicians, and physicians held me in their hands and guided me through the process with absolutely no effort necessary from me. I found something extremely likable about each of them. Kathleen, my first nurse, who shares the name of my crazy and mean sister, had lovely hair, beautiful and kind eyes, and carried herself with a sense of purpose I can't even dream of mustering for any reason. Her counterpart, a nurse named Bridget, which is my grandmother's name, performed my quick turnaround COVID-19 test, which was thankfully negative. She was quick-witted, funny, and gentle in her exceptionally deep prodding. The tech who took me to my first test, uh, whose name I can't remember unfortunately, was a young man with fabulous hair and a soothing voice. He asked me lots of questions and was super cool. The technician who did the CT scan cracked jokes and helped me feel at ease as he injected me with a contrasting agent, which he told me would make me feel like I'd pissed myself. When I asked him if I might actually piss myself, he told me he'd never seen it happen but was open to new experiences. The attending doctor in the emergency room, Dr. Martin, was uncommonly friendly, confident, and projected a much needed calm about the whole thing. He was the first to really impress upon me how potentially dangerous a thing a Spanish aunt could be if it showed up in a person's brain. Sorry, brain.
So the bridges that I burn While still in the emergency room, I found myself in a monitored bed with leads on my chest and a device in my finger taking my pulse and counting my heartbeats. I had two temporary roommates. One of them was an older and kind of drunk sounding guy who was breathing heavily when alone and intermittently crying about what happened to Jack Kennedy when the nurse was around. I have no idea what he was in for, but he was released and told that a cab was waiting for him outside. The other character, an intensely neurotic guy from the East Coast, was simply saying, Ow! about twice a minute. It turns out he crashed his bicycle on a long ride earlier in the day. The nurse who was looking after all of us was adorable, small, but vivacious and no-nonsense in her approach. She was practically dancing from patient to patient with confident and purposeful steps. It felt like she was three different people wrapped up in one little body as she dealt with the three very dissimilar patients in her room. I have no idea how many patients she was responsible for that day, but she took the time to wheel my bed up to the room where I would spend the night and wished me luck. I pictured her riding the bed back to the emergency room, like a teenager at a grocery store riding a cart back from the parking lot. The other nurses I had throughout my stay overnight and through the next day were, without exception, kind, comforting, funny, and willing to do whatever it took to make sure I was okay. I thought about how fortunate I was to be in such good care. It struck me that the attention to detail in a hospital stay may often go unnoticed. I enjoyed the half a turkey sandwich I was given to eat that night. I liked the pattern on my impossible to manage hospital gown. I was in awe of the functionality of the electric hospital bed and respected the placement of identical buttons on either side of it for controlling the incline and recline. The big buttons on the remote for the lights in my room or to call for help were so comforting and must have been designed with that in mind. There was a little portable heart monitor that I could take with me to the bathroom and the gray slippers I had on over my socks had sticky pads on them to keep me from sliding around on the floor. I was pleasantly delighted every time the nurses would refill my own two-cup pitcher of water and appreciated the form and design of the pitcher itself. So hard to spill. I'm not sure if this is common, but all of this was magnificent to me. I genuinely had a good time. And I mean an actual good time, not the kind of quote-unquote good time you say you're having when you're just kind of tolerating a situation. I felt completely off the hook from all responsibility. Completely, totally, 100% not expected to do a single fucking thing. 
but lie down and relax. Expectation was a faraway dream. My wife was handling the outside world for me, and I could just cocoon in that thoughtfully crafted womb filled with people suffering much deeper trauma than I was, while a small army of people whose sole purpose was to relieve that suffering were busy charming people back to health. My time spent as an inmate in that hospital also made me think of how lucky anyone who's ever ended up in the care of my wife or my mother has been. With everyone wearing masks lately, I've noticed how the limited aspect of people's faces I'm able to view and appreciate make me pay way more attention to just faces in general. Of course, a human's eyes are always worth paying special attention, but there's so much more going on in the upper half of a human face than just the eyes. There are scars, divots, ridges, freckles, wrinkles, pimples, eyebrows, wild hairs, lashes, makeup styles, hairlines, skin tones, cheekbones, shapes, and various idiosyncrasies which make looking into even half a face worthy of a lifetime of exploration. Those fortunate souls who've been looking into the half-exposed faces of my mom and my wife over the many years of their service to the suffering have been exposed to half of two of the best faces I know. They both have intense and beautiful eyes. Eyes which convey empathy, compassion, kindness, vulnerability, and an unconditional interest in healing with just a glance. But the other wrinkles and features of those two faces tell the rest of the story. One of those faces knows the pain of loss, the joy of childbirth, and how to hold your hand and your attention while you die. The other knows what it's like to stare into the rushing waters of a river in the spring without a care in the world, and what it might take to get you the hell out of there alive. I was released from the hospital after a morning of more tests, constant observation, good conversation, and ultimately lots of restful leisure time, sipping what felt like a bottomless pitcher of lovingly refilled water. Tiff visited me and made me feel like a champ. The other nurses in the hospital were able to speak their language with her, and she translated to me in the language she knows I understand. When I was wheeled out of the hospital, I was greeted by her and Pele. He ran to me like we'd been apart for years and danced around the wheelchair, crying and leaping with joy. He sat in my lap on the ride home and slept soundly. Since that visit, I've seen a cardiologist and have been deeply drugged while a tube was shoved down my throat so a probe could take pictures of my heart without my bony ribs getting in the way. Before and after that procedure, more sweet and delightful nurses gifted me with their charms, a free muffin, and a cup of honest-to-God caffeinated coffee. It has since been determined that I did suffer a small stroke and that my heart, while beating a strange rhythm at times and with a small hole in it, is still seaworthy and pounding a beat that is, if not danceable, at least sufficient to operate the slow moving mechanism to type words, plant vegetables, and toss sticks to an improbably not homeless dog.
I know I often write about being grateful for just about everything, but gratitude is a frequently overlooked emotion, in my opinion. It is as powerful a reaction as rage, love, ecstasy, or fear. Let it wash over you now if you have time or feel like it. Think of something which changed you for the better. Something without which you would not be you. Was it a new friend? Maybe it was a spouse. Maybe it was both. Was it a crisis of health? Maybe you got a great job or realized your parents were actually wonderful or your suspicions that they were horrible were confirmed by a therapist. Whatever it is, think about a set of facts of significance to you and really let the enormity of them sink in. Without those things, where would you be? You can't know, really, and that, I think, is the power of gratitude. And so far as I can tell, to be grateful is to humbly embrace a wildly out of control and entirely different and chaotic system of chance, reaction, and consequence. Swirling and tumultuous life is something which just happens to you. No matter how with it we may be, we're like a drunk getting fleeced by a priest offering salvation and forgiveness which were never his to offer in the first place. This thing is happening to you, whether you like it or not. If it doesn't hurt right now, I'm grateful. If it hurts less than it did before, I'm thankful. If it won't hurt for long, I'm appreciative. If it kills me, I'm pleased for all the things which did not, and I'm glad to have reached the end of the line. When I forget to be grateful, I'm relieved when I remember because it feels correct and puts me back into socket, so to speak. In the past few years, I found myself grateful for a number of things which I would never have thought possible before. For instance, a small snake in the high desert of Utah has my eternal gratitude. A torn meniscus came at exactly the right time, just like a broken turbo hose on the freeway and a small fender bender in Guatemala. I'm beyond fortunate to have a kind and tolerant wife who loves me, even when I'm awful and depressed. A sprained ankle in Mexico gave me the time to read exactly the right book for the right moment. A writer I admire became my pal because of email and espresso. I had a little stroke and not the big one. I got to spend a Saturday night in a strange electric bed while being attended to by kind and lovely women, and the whole time waiting for me with love and affection. My wife and my dog were looking out for me, making me want to be the kind of person who deserves such wonderful things to happen to them. It could be true, both for me and possibly for you. It is better to be lucky than good.
Silence.